0: salvation rethinking saving faith and christian baptism it's a book i've written the book is in two parts and tonight we will finish the first half of the book the first part of the book what i'm trying to show is the question i'm answering is how and when and i reverse those in the order in the book when does god save a sinner and How does God save a sinner? And in the early chapters of the book, I say, salvation, we we talk about, you know, I got saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, in Paul's terminology particularly, it means you've been made righteous. To use the Old Testament, like Isaiah, that that, uh, our brother teaches, Johnny teaches on Sunday morning, it means God imparts His holiness to His people. Be ye holy as I am holy. Now, in the Hebrew, it is not an imperative. It comes over in Peter. In Greek, it is an imperative. But in the Hebrew, it is not an imperative. And the Hebrew has an imperative tense. And so, the, thing, the argument I make is, what he's saying is, it's not a commandment for you to be something that you can't be. I mean, if you're not holy, you can't make yourself holy, correct? What he's saying in Isaiah, it's a promise. You will be holy because I am holy and I am making you my people. And so by definition, you'll be holy if you'll be my people. Now, there's some conditions, right Johnny, to being his people that that we don't seem to get, right? And it's always been that way. And so when we carry that over into the New Testament, God makes us righteous. As righteous as He is righteous. He makes us saints, which is a derivative of the the same word, holy, holy ones. It's something He's planned from the very beginning. And the question I'm addressing in the book is, when does He do that in the New Covenant? And how does He do that? And in the first part of the book, I'm trying to show you how the whole conversation kind of got off, off the, the beaten path. I'm trying to come up with an analogy. What I'm using now is part one is, you know, how the lens got fogged, how the lens got obscured, and then part two is going to be putting on a new pair of lenses and looking at this again. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. But So tonight we'll wrap up the first part of how this thing got off track and it really got off track um, when the the violent reaction to the, the medieval church and what the medieval church was doing, you had this extreme and you had an extreme reaction and then an extreme reaction that was taken to its logical extreme and you wind up in a place that is still, in my opinion, far from what scripture is revealing about when God makes us righteous and how God makes us righteous. So that's where we're going. And indulgences, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm going to hope that you read the email. If you didn't read the email after tonight's class, if you think, boy, he really went quick through that, go back and read my email and and try to dig it out. Um, and if you'd have questions, feel free to text me or, or send me an email. So we're, we're about the year 1500. The medieval church is enormous. It's, it's far reaching. It's, uh, it has split into two uh, factions back in the, uh, the turn of the millennium. And so you have an eastern uh, Eastern group that primarily use the Greek text, which today is the Greek Orthodox Church. And then you have our uh, predecessors in the faith, what's called the Western Church or the Latin Church. They use Latin. Um, But it's it's far-reaching and it's corrupt. Now you see several fractures begin to appear in the 14th and 15th century. So that would be the 1300s and the 1400s. And all of these fractures are directly related to what? The availability of the text. So you've got Wycliffe in the 1300s who's beginning to translate the Bible into the common vernacular. Now, the problem is Gutenberg hadn't come along yet, right? You didn't have a printing press. So his translations are handwritten. But but even throughout that, the Bible is a forbidden book. The lay people are forbidden to read it. Even the clergy are forbidden to translate it and certainly forbidden to give it to the laity. And the church's power over the laity depends on biblical ignorance. And truth be known, most of the clergy have no idea what the Bible says. To this day, you know, we were missionaries in Mexico, and uh, somebody told us the Catholicism in Mexico never experienced the Renaissance, never experienced the Enlightenment. And so what you see in Mexico is pretty much medieval Catholicism. And, and that's true. I mean, the, the cathedrals are still the ones built by Cortez. Yes, ma'am. When
1: I was a teenager, we had a family that was from a really rural part of Mexico that lived with us for a while, they were getting established and they were talking about how they, they
0: became Christians but they were talking when they were they raised the priest told
1: them if they touched the bible their hands would fall off Absolutely And this
0: is how many years ago I don't want to say <laughs> Okay <laughs> Bye. Bye. Sorry about that Benita Open my mouth and, in, and exchange my feet Within the last 15 years or so right <laughs> Well and that's true I mean you go into the if you, you you know, we we uh, we went through a period where we were trying to plant a church. That's what we were trained to do, and we finally understood you, that ain't going to work. And so we we scrapped the whole idea of church and we opened a instituto biblico, a Bible institute, and we offered free Bible classes. And instead of When we would campaign, I told you about us going through the neighborhood, knocking doors. We wouldn't invite them to come to church. We would invite them to come to a seminar. La Biblia. What does the Bible say? Man, that's when things took off. Because you know, with Vatican II in sixty-eight, in nineteen sixty-eight, they are allowed now to study the Bible. But that was nineteen sixty-eight, folks the church finally came out and officially said, "Oh yeah, you can study the Bible." So when the question comes up, you know, why are these doctrines that are coming from the 1500s so opposed to the Bible? Well, yeah, you're 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 anachronistically looking at. They didn't care what the Bible said. Many of them, most of them maybe didn't even know what the Bible said. And these guys who were talking about theology, they were more philosophers than they were theologians. Does that make sense? They were philosophizing. They were looking at Greek philosophy and trying to fit what they understood about Christianity. They were not exegeting the text of Scripture. So we've got to get that in our mind. Uh, Benita, I was going to say, you, know, you go into those cathedrals, and they're the cathedrals that the, the, first, the first cathedral built in Mexico was in Cuernavaca. Because Cortes, after the war, and he conquered, he conquered the Aztecs with chickenpox <laughs> um, and syphilis, um, he went back to Spain to face charges. They acquitted him, and the king said, You can have any province that you want in Mexico. He didn't choose Mexico City, he chose Cuernavaca. If you've ever been there, you'll know why he did. La ciudad de la primavera eterna, eternal spring. Average temperature year round 75 degrees. Rains at night. I told you about my friend Sean, right? I'm getting off track he comes down as our intern after we'd lived there a couple of years and he found a house to rent. So the house, uh, they're all, you know, with balls around them and a gate for a car for an automobile. Well, the renters before him didn't have an automobile. And so the tree that was over the top of the house, which was a two story house, the limbs were hanging down and he came in August. And so, we went and clipped it and made a tunnel in there so he could drive his, his Toyota. And I, I smelled it and I looked at the leaves and I'm thinking, man, what kind of a tree is that? I, I know what that tree is. I know that smell. I know the shape of that leaf. Yeah, come back in November, it's a poinsettia. I mean, the, go ahead.
1: Um. Now, move to my early 20s when we did LST, but start talking in Germany. Um, one, of our, one of the team, a guy who was studying with a priest in Germany, came back and told us that the priest was an atheist. Right. So that's... Yeah.
0: That's hard for us to believe. But uh, You go into those cathedrals and that's what I was going to say. There is a Bible in the Mass, but it's under lock and key. And it's worshipped not worshipped. I, I, I wouldn't say that. That's probably overstatement. It's venerated as an object, an holy object, an icon. an icon. Thank you. One of the one of the dumbest things I ever did as a missionary in Mexico. I was in a small group. I'm sorry. And our small groups were to study the Bible. Biblia, That was our emphasis. What does the Bible say? And there were about a dozen people in there. And I'm sitting there, and we had all we bought cases of Bibles, and we would call out the page number. Well, somebody didn't have a Bible, and I asked them to read, and they said, "No thing will be going to be Oh, here you go. Here's one. Oh wow! Oh, wow. <laughs> man, you could. I, it was a vacuum in that room. The, the air left that room,
2: and I never did that again.
0: So. Okay, so that, uh, that's a little side trip. But, but there were fractures appearing with Wycliffe in the 1300s. He starts saying, hey, look, we need to read this thing because, you know, the church is not. And, of course, he, the people, I mean, he got so excited about it, he lost his head, right? <laughs> so the medieval church was leveled, absolutely leveled in the 16th century by the Protestant Reformation. Well, how did that happen? What precipitated its collapse? Well, Wycliffe had a handwritten translation of the Latin Vulgate. Uh, I couldn't fit it all on one line. So uh, that's about 1380 plus or minus. Um, Gutenberg came up with his printing press and he printed a version or he printed a copy of the Latin Vulgate in, in about 1456. That was his first project. Um, Erasmus um, now you'll notice these dates are going to overlap with Luther here. Um, he produced a Greek New Testament, very few Greek scholars, very few Greek scholars. Erasmus was one of the early ones. Most were Latin scholars. Um, and that goes way back. OK. Luther, with his 95 thesis, which is going to be a focus of our first few minutes. Tyndale. William Tyndale. Now his is after the Gutenberg printing press and his actually gets distributed. But in his preface, he says, my objective is so that the boy running the plow on the farm will know more Bible than the Pope himself. And honestly, that wasn't saying much. But that was his objective. Um, And it appears in 1525. So the perfect storm was in place. Okay. Okay. And so our focus right now is indulgences, because as we're going to that's kind of the spark that lit the fire. The fire was brewing. You ever seen I get the impression, you know, one of those uh, mounds of, of uh, cattle uh, manure and they, the methane gas, and it starts getting so hot and it starts steaming, and then all of a sudden it just into flames. That's what is happening. Um, So indulgences, as I said in the email, I'm gonna go over this quickly. Pinpointing exactly what was taught and when it was taught and believed, it's difficult to do because the the doctrine evolved. What I'm trying to do is give you a snapshot of where it was in the year 14 and 1500. The preference that it only applies to other people was being relaxed. Um, Acts of piety earn the performer merit, and I used in my illustration in my email, you have more or less a spiritual bank account. And if you have an excess, who gets that excess? The church gets that excess. It's called the treasury of the church. And they can distribute that through the communion of the saints. You've heard of that doctrine, right? We believe in God the Father, we believe in you know the creed, right? And then part of that creed is we believe in the communion of saints. What are they saying? Well, St. Catherine dies with an excess. The communion that I can have, and I quoted the, the, the catechesis that shows that, I have access to her excess bank account, and it can help me. Um, and that excess merit can be transferred to the account of another. And indulgences were allowed for the dead. This is critical. Because this is where Johann Tetzel really preyed upon people. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and it could reduce, remember, the temporal punishment for sin. We're not talking about forgiveness of sin. That wasn't available. You couldn't just do something and, and, and have your sin forgiven only God could forgive your sin. What was being dealt with in an indulgence was that punishment that's designed to make you more spiritual, to make you more holy. You know, take a pilgrimage to the basilica in so and so, you and know, that'll take you three days. Fast for the first day, and instead of eating, say prayers. What is all that designed to do? It's designed to make you stronger spiritually. And these indulgences, you could substitute that for something else. That was called an indulgence.
2: But that's a good, sound practice. Yes, it is. In in its beginning, in everything that you've said in all your stuff, that penance and indulgences all had a very sound, biblical... Absolutely.
0: And... I, I, without going into it, but I sort of uh, roundaboutly encouraged if you don't know about the spiritual disciplines, it's well to find out what they do. Mm -hmm. And if you're struggling with a particular uh, problem in your life, um, prayer and fasting and solitude and retreats and those things really work, right, Sanny? Sanny's a big disciplined person. She's done spiritual retreats ever since I've known her. Um, okay, so partial amnesty, full amnesty, both were available. Okay, so that's where we were. Well, what happened? Here's what happened. Uh, pope Julius comes to the to the uh, papal throne in 1503. Um, he's known. This is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He's known as the fearsome pope or the warrior pope. The dude is a military commander. Okay. You know, he, I mean, we're kind of back in Jesus' day, right? The Messiah was going to be who? A spiritual leader? No, he's going to be a guy who runs the army. Well, here's the pope in the 1500s. He beats up and saves the papal states from uh, conquest. And so he's known as the warrior pope. He broke ground in 1506 on April 18th. The basilica in Rome, the basilica of St. Peter, was in terrible shape, kind of like you know Notre Dame Cathedral today. And so he undertakes, I'm gonna rebuild uh, the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. The problem is in 1513, he dies. He broke ground, but he dies, and now uh, Leo X assumes the papacy. Well, Leo X not only inherits the papacy, he inherits the building project. He's got to follow through with it. Well, what's he going to do? It's a, ga- a cash guzzling project. You know, how much, how much money was given to the Notre Dame Cathedral? I mean, millions, right? 500 million. Well, they didn't have, you know, uh, who was the guy and his, his actress wife, who, what's her name, the Mexican that gave so much money? Oh, I can see her. I wanna say Angelina Angelina Jolie, but that's not right. Oh, anyway, but you know, she and her husband gave hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, they didn't have those kind of benefactors back then. And so what did they do? Here's a good quote. This never-ending need for cash led popes to distribute the church's supposed spiritual treasure. And that's just, they dispensed those excess merits through the issues of indulges, with increasing generosity in an attempt to satisfy their greed. I mean, this was just insane. And so, Pope Leo X finds this guy named Johann Tetzel. And there, there are his dates. He's a young German Dominican friar and preacher. He's highly educated. He is an indulgence salesman extraordinaire. And so Leo X puts him, basically, he's the the campaign manager. Go out there and raise me some money. And whether he said this is a matter of historical dispute, but it's attributed to him. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Or, or something similar. Out of Purgatory Springs. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, out of Purgatory, the soul, the rescued soul springs. Or some little jingle like that. But he would come into town and he's dealing with peasants who could barely afford to put food in their mouth. And he's selling them indulgences. And again, what is happening? He's saying... You know your uncle Bill died three years ago. Now we know Bill was not—you uh, know—he hadn't been to confession in three years, and um, he had two mistresses. So we know where Bill is. He's not in hell because he didn't commit—you know—a a, a major sin. But we know he didn't go directly to heaven. So where is he? He is in purgatory. And what is
2: purgatory?
0: Yeah. And I tell people, it is not hell. It has no connection to hell. It's the realm of the dead who are on their way to heaven. I, You know, it's not the attic of hell. It's the basement of heaven. But it's here that he is purged which you can do on that slide I said, you know, the temporal punishment of sin. That's what this is. This is a process that makes you more like Christ. And if you die with a deficit, you go into purgatory so that you're purified and so that when you become as pure as Christ, you're transferred into heaven. Well, what he did was, oh yeah, you can attend a mass. Well, first you have to attend a mass for yourself. But then if you want to come back a couple more times that day, you'll get credit for those, and you can apply that credit to Bill. And that was the original idea. Okay, I can fast for the first day for me, and then you know, Friday and Saturday and Sunday is for Uncle Bill. And I'll give him that credit. Well, that's the way it, it started out. But then it started uh, evolving when these guys needed this cash they'd say, hey, instead of attending mass, why don't you just pay for mass? Why don't you just sponsor a dozen masses? Well, how much is that? Oh, I don't know, 100 bucks a piece. And you'll get credit for that and you can give your credit to Uncle Bill. See what's happening? And then they just said, well, forget about masses, just give us the money and we'll give you a certificate. That you, you know, you've got so much. And that's what was happening. Does that make sense? Okay. So. I'm
2: sorry.
0: No, it doesn't make much sense. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Well, this guy comes along and I don't have time to. Uh, I mean, if you can watch it. Doc- there are several documentaries on him that are just. But you need to you need to. Study this guy's life. What an amazing human being! Was going to be a lawyer. So was so was John Calvin.
2: How so, many indulgences did that? Yeah.
0: Well, the unusual thing about Martin Luther is that he he, he was filling two roles. He got his uh, degree in theology much to the chagrin of his father, who wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, and so he was teaching at the university, but he was also the assistant pastor at St. Mary's Church. And so in this classroom, he could sort of push the envelope, but in the church, he was obligated under his oath to, go, to tow the party line, and it really became a conflict for him. So the beginning of 1507, tension is mounting, the assumption is that Luther knew that Tetzel was on his tear across Europe, raising money, and that he'd actually entered Germany and was selling these indulgences. Um, He had preached on uh, indulgences prior to this, and was actually fairly favorable to indulgences again. He preached in his role as the pastor of the church. And so he's gotta support this doctrine because it's an official doctrine of the church. But in February 1517, he preaches again, and you can see that his attitude had changed. His attitude really changed in the classroom earlier than this. But in this sermon, he says, I don't like indulgences. I'm sorry I ever said I did. Because what's happening is the, the people, sinners, are, rather than going to the cross of Christ, people are filling up on indulgences. And in the book I go in a lot more detail. He had some pretty scathing things to say about indulgences. And by the end of 1517, we have a crisis. I mean, he had had enough of the medieval church, and so on All Hallows' Eve, which we call Halloween, he posts his 95 theses on the door, How would that affect the world? I can't go into. It's not my emphasis. What I'm emphasizing in this first part of the book is that he started a new trajectory of thought that we are still wrestling with today. We are still wrestling with today. When we get into a conversation about what Christian baptism is, it's because of this trajectory that began right here. And that's what I'm trying to show in the first part of the book. So there's a new way of looking at things. From Luther's perspective, and you can see how he got here, right? The medieval church is teaching works righteousness. I mean, you're baptized as an infant. You confirm that baptism when you reach the age of accountability. But how do you handle all of your sin that you commit after baptism? You don't go to the cross of Christ you go to this system of somehow working, doing something to handle your sin. And Martin Luther was completely um, incensed by that concept. And so he developed the battle cry for the Protestant Reformation, and that is a sinful human being is saved, made righteous, which is what the New Testament teaches, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. And that's what we inherited, this trajectory. So let's look at it more closely. Grace, whose grace? Of course, God's grace. But watch this. Watch this. Because this is key to my thesis in the second part of the book. Whose faith? Whose faith makes us righteous?
2: You're going to say Christ's faith. I'm going to say Christ's faith.
0: But according to the new to the Protestant Reformation, sinner's faith. Sinner's faith makes us righteous. And in my mind, as I read the New Testament, that's where the entire conversation got off track. And I will show you that in the coming weeks. Because in my mind, you're, you're exchanging one for another and neither one of them really solved the problem. So, here's my argument. Luther was reacting to the error he saw in his day, and Luther reacted with an alternative view. A sinner's works were replaced with a sinner's faith. That's his battle cry. That's his, his proposition. Here's my battle cry. Well, here's, here's my question. Does it solve the dilemma Here's the dilemma under the the medieval church. My works make me righteous? What if my works aren't sufficient? Well, they had an answer to that, right? You died and your works didn't rub it all off. You go to purgatory and God would rub the rest off. The problem is, my faith makes me righteous? What if my faith is insufficient? And as Protestants, we don't have a purgatory. So here's here's the uncertainty. And i to me they're two sides of the same coin. They're a distinction without a difference. And in the years of my preaching, you know, I asked my people, how many of you know that if you died right now, you'd go to be with Jesus?
2: You're asking
0: that. I am asking. <laughs> And when you really press people on that, I, I had a ministry with this woman. Um, bless her heart. She, um, she was old school Church of Christ. She was taught, you know, and she was in her 80s and she got dehydrated and it was, the doctor couldn't figure out what it was. And so her husband, Bob, uh, had her sleeping in her armchair out in the living room and he was such a sweet guy and he'd come out take care of her and she called me up one morning Bob you got to come over you got to come over and I said well what's what's going on she said I, I woke up last night and I was just having a fit and I was sweating all over and I woke up and I I sat up and there was Jesus at the foot of my armchair and I said well that's not bad news what did he say to you He said I was fine, that he loved me, that everything was fine, and that all my sins were forgiven. And I said, Joy, that's great. And she says, yeah, but he doesn't know what I've done. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Joy, next time the Lord tells you you're okay, why don't you take him at his word, you know? But there's this gnawing doubt that, I I never quite was able to overcome it in my preaching ministry with certain people. And I think it's because of this. Here's my battle cry. To the extent that my position before God depends on me, to that precise extent, my position is insecure. I believe that with all my heart. And that's why I want us to seriously question the change in trajectory that occurred at the Protestant Reformation. Because you're not saved by your works for God. And my argument is, the New Testament never says you're made righteous by your faith either. Never says that. Says you're you're saved by Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and your faith puts you into Jesus Christ.
2: Mm-hmm. But what He carries the
0: load. The There's a huge difference, Don. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a hymn that Don me. did. You repent, fully repent of your sins, dear. You know that hour of Sunday. I said, man, how do I know i have fully repented? Mm-hmm. How did you, have, you, uh, have you given yourself totally to Jesus? Is Jesus the Lord of you? You start asking those things, and my answer can only be, I want to either fake it or just say, I, it's yeah. not true. Well, I understand that conceptually it's hard um, to get this, but, but I want to I wrestle with it. I've devoted two, at least two classes to it, starting next week and the following week. And I want to show you the scriptures that I'm talking about and show you what's being said. And when we come out on the other side, um, you know, hopefully there will be more confidence. Um, Let's take the last uh, section of class. Let me go through Martin Luther because I I devote one whole chapter in the book um, because I, I love Martin Luther. And I always thought Martin Luther was the one who jettisoned Christian baptism. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. And so I want to show you that in the last uh, 16 minutes that we have, okay? Uh, So the Reformation explosion, he posts his 95 theses. His intent was to uh, initiate a reasoned discussion. What happened was a cataclysmic social upheaval like Western civilization has never seen. His first treatment of baptism, he comes up with a really good statement. The mode is total immersion. Now, the problem is what was going on in his time. Infants were being sprinkled or poured. I don't know exactly how they did it. Some sprinkle. And Martin Luther never backed down from that. He said, I don't care what the practice is. Total immersion is clear from the meaning of the word. Now, remember, he's working with primarily German and the Latin, underlying Latin. But but he says it's clear from what baptism signifies. So he came up with it. He said there's a sign, there's a significance, and then the key to understanding it is the faith that's involved. So let's go through that real quick. The sign is the plunging into the water and the drawing out of the water. This is all Martin Luther on baptism. The significance of that act is Romans 6, right? He lectured on Romans and Galatians and the Psalms it's an event that reenacts the death burial and resurrection so it can't be a sprinkling it's an immersion is his argument but the key and here's where I want to finish the class tonight the key is the faith the faith that baptism does what it says it does that sin was drowned at baptism. It's the occasion of salvation. When does God save at baptism? We saw that in the New Testament. We saw it for the first 400 years. Now we've gone into the Dark Ages. We're coming out of the Dark Ages. And where's the doctrine? Same place it's always been. It's the occasion that marks the new birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. This is Martin Luther on baptism. Carl, will you do me a favor? You could give me a glass, a cup of decaf. I'm decaf. Yeah.
2: <laughs> now,
0: here's, here's where Martin Luther's uh, theology is absolutely uh, genius. He says, if you're a sinner, after your baptism... What do you do? Do you go to the priest and perform penance? No. You remember your baptism. You remember what God did at your baptism, that your sin was drowned and you were reborn into a new covenant with God. Thank you, brother. Baptism establishes a covenant between God and the sinful human being. Did I hear you say the key was
1: faith in your baptism?
0: No. Okay. No, Martin Luther would never say that. Okay,
1: I thought that's what. No. Faith in Jesus. Faith
0: in Jesus and what God is able to accomplish because of Jesus, and that is marked. It's the occasion that marks that event, your baptism. I mean that's that's what I teach on baptism right so let's look at some of his words I I don't want you to take my word for it so here he says um, in Luther's theology baptism is faith in God's word as expressed in the promise to not count our iniquity or impurities against us that is of all things most necessary so these are his words for it is the ground of all comfort He who does not possess such faith must despair of his sins, for the sin which remains after baptism makes it impossible for any good works to be pure before God. I mean, that's true, right? Anything I try to do for God, even after my baptism, is going to be tainted by my own sinful inclination. Do you agree with that or not agree with that? Martin Luther says you're never gonna be perfect person. But for this reason we must boldly and without fear hold fast to our baptism and set it high against all sins and terrors of conscience. Now doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God is greater than even my own conscience? If my conscience condemns me, does God condemn me as well? No, not if I'm in Christ. It's hard, it's easy to say those words. It's hard to really believe those words. Joy, my dear friend, had a hard time believing those words. Her conscience condemned her. Of what, I have no idea. She maybe missed a Wednesday night back in the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no we must humbly admit I know full well that I cannot do a single thing that is pure but I am baptized and through my baptism God who cannot lie has bound himself in covenant with me he will not count my sin against me he will slay it and blot it out and that's a powerful theology of baptism isn't it I could preach that all day every day this is Martin Luther It is faith like this That the devil attacks most of all If he can overthrow it he has won the battle A proper understanding of baptism Will lead one into that which baptism Is and does Believe and you have it Doubt and you are lost So we find that only by the lack of faith In its operation Is baptism cancelled out Faith in turn removes the hindrance To the operation of baptism Thus everything depends on faith For so long as I believe that God will not count my sins against me, my baptism is enforced and my sins will be forgiven, even though they may still in a great measure be present. Forgiveness takes place through God's covenant with us. Therefore, we must not doubt this forgiveness. So that's the key. Yes, you have to do it. There's no magic in the water. He is not teaching water regeneration. He is teaching an act of obedience that puts you into covenant with God and now benefits you, makes you holy because you're in in covenant with God. For this reason, no one should be terrified if he sins after being baptized. Rather, he should remember his baptism and comfort himself joyfully with the fact that God has there pledged himself to slay his sin for him. And not counted as a cause of condemnation.
1: So I have a question. Uh, I probably don't have the answer.
0: But, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, <my laughs> she said, I'm not going to have an answer?
1: <laughs> she said, probably.
0: I'll make one up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm wondering about all the people in the medieval times and even um, in 1966. The people that did not have a Bible, did not um, receive the word, obviously through the priests, and, and they were not able to do a covenant with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. What, ha- what happens to them? Is the priest accountable, or is the leadership, or?
0: Yeah, you know how I answer that? You know what I don't know? I don't know what I don't know. See, I told you. Yeah. No, there's, no, there's yeah. no way to answer that. Any answer would be speculation because only God can speak to that. Mm-hmm. That's. Just, yeah. Okay. I, I just
1: think feel we sorry
0: need to leave them in God's hand. Yeah. You have to, right. All we can do is read and do what it says for us. So go ahead, Benita.
1: That's not. That's today. I have this email from a woman who's. Um, we read it. Before I go to Zambia, I'm here in Athens to teach refugees. In October, while in Athens, I heard many stories from the Arabic world about dreams, dreams that lead them to Jesus. One man dreamed that a bright light spoke to him and the light said, tomorrow someone will tell you the truth about me. Listen to him. The next day, a Christian met him on the street and told him about Jesus. Another had a dream where a lion led him to a certain building and stopped. The next day, the man went to the place where he read in the Bible about Jesus. These are only two cases about dreams, but I've heard of many more. Please pray for the dreamers in their search for truth. Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's working, right? Mm-hmm. and right. we
0: can trust mm-hmm. that. Okay, so I'm almost done. Luther's theology, that was his theology. In his small catechism, in his large catechism, in his many later sermons on baptism, he never backed off of that view of baptism. Now it was confounded, confused, because of the infant baptism problem. But that was his theology. Um, His battle cry was simple enough. Who thought it could topple an entire culture? But here's the problem, and here's where I want to finish to lay our foundation for next week. His battle cry contains a logical inconsistency. If human beings are saved by faith alone, then what need is there for baptism? Martin Luther never backed off of baptism. He held his ground and he explained himself by what we just read. I'm not, I'm not, it's not faith in baptism, but it's faith in God expressed in baptism. Well, for Luther baptism is an act of faith and it's essential there. You can't become a Christian without being baptized. According to Luther, my judgment, according to the New Testament, and certainly according to the first 400 years, as I showed in an earlier class, I mean, it was the it was the there was no such thing, and modern scholars are coming to that conclusion. There was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. Gary,
2: I think the, you've answered the conundrum that you proposed in the top line there. If human beings are saved by faith alone the answer is his understanding that baptism is and which it is an act of faith. Exactly. Faith alone, faith includes baptism. Baptism is faith in obedience. Exactly. Uh, It's faith in the operation of God, Colossians 2.12. So the problem in the modern uh, ecumenical movement is that when we see faith, we tend to, we tend to think Belief alone. alone. And faith is an obedient trust in God. Exactly. Whereas belief is something completely different. But the demons you, believe. You've shared here, right? Uh, faith includes obedience, baptism and of faith. Faith is more than belief.
0: Exactly. Okay, so this was Luther's theology in 1519. It was this theology in 1529. It was the theology of baptism when he died. But... Not everybody agreed with Luther. Now, infant baptism became a big issue, and Luther never gave up on infant baptism, and so a group called, he called them the enthusiasts. They were Anabaptists, baptized again, or the radical reformers of which we are inheritors, and they gave him fits, and he actually executed some of them. But there's more, okay, there's more and i've got 4 minutes to do this a guy who was born just after martin luther it's sometimes called uh, he's ulrich zwingli some sometimes pronounced a different way but the h is silent he is a leader of the protestant reformation in switzerland he's a contemporary of martin luther he grabs a hold of martin luther's ideas and he runs with them and he sees the the logical inconsistency in what Martin Luther is saying. It's faith alone, sinners' faith alone, but you still have to be baptized, and Luther said that, it's the occasion of human salvation. Swingley said, no way, no way. He opposed all of the sacraments, including the Eucharist and baptism, and he says, We teach, therefore, that the sacraments should be reverenced as holy things because they signify most holy things, but both of which have already happened by faith alone. And those which we ourselves are produced and do, the baptism signifies that Christ has already washed us in his blood when we develop faith alone, and that we are to put on Christ, that is, to follow his example as Paul teaches. So water baptism cannot contribute in any way to the washing away of sin. Although baptism may wash the body, and that is all water baptism can do, it cannot and it does not take away sin. Now that is a con- complete contradiction to the New Testament and 1,500 years of Christian tradition. It's, but it's the basis of our modern views of baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward grace, A sign of something that has already happened. So you get to Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Ace is the Greek preposition. Unto the remission of sins. They say no. That should be translated because of. Repent and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Because your sins were forgiven when you developed faith. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. baptism a commandment for every Christian, baptism is an example to be followed after you've been saved. The bottom line is, as I said in my second chapter of the book, Christian baptism is the boogeyman. If you teach Christian baptism has anything to do with removing human sin, you've denied the Protestant Reformation, and you're going back to at least Lutheranism And most likely you're going back to Roman Catholicism. And you're denying the Protestant Reformation. So they're all innovations. We have the New Testament. We have the first century, first three centuries, and the fourth through the 16th centuries. So here's here's my final slide, and I'll quit. This started a new trajectory of thought. They were reacting to the idea it's not a sinner's works for God that make the sinner righteous. But it is the sinner's faith in Christ that makes a person righteous. That was the alternative. And that won the day. And it got taken to its logical conclusion. And now we have the conundrum of when we try to have a conversation about what is Christian baptism, we have this difficulty. Why? Because we too, in our conversations, Agree with this. We believe that the New Testament teaches. That it's my faith in Christ. That makes me righteous. And in the next few weeks. I'm going to show you. That that is not what the New Testament says. That's the way it's been translated. Because of this. Dichotomy that was laid down. In the Protestant Reformation. But Paul is emphatic. When he talks about how God makes a human being righteous, he never talks about a sinner's faith in Christ. He talks about the obedient faithfulness of Christ that makes his, sin, his righteousness available. And that's where we'll pick up next time. All right, thank you.
1: Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the East Side Church of Christ sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.